selfie real quick. Just kidding. I'm just going to put that right there and like go like this to remember what I'm doing. All right. Um, this coming Wednesday, we are so excited to have kickball at Briar Park. Are you? Yeah. Come one, come all, come young, come old. Everyone is invited. You don't have to play. We want you to play, but you don't have to play. You can just come and enjoy company with other people. Um, we have invited our soccer club families to come to that as well. And so maybe a few of them would come, and you would be just the person to be able to connect with them. Um, and so we'll start at 6.30. It is bring your own dinner to the park. Okay, we're not feeding you, you're feeding yourself. And then um, at around seven o'clock, we'll start to kind of look at who's here and who wants to play and we'll divide people into teams and then we'll go crazy with kickball. Am I right, hype guy? Yeah, thank you, yes sir. I'm super excited about it, so I hope that you'll come out. It's kind of our end of the summer, last chance to kind of connect and be together as a family and friends, get to know people that we wouldn't normally rub shoulders with on a Sunday morning um, before we head into the fall. So we're trying to squeeze every ounce of summer out. Do you feel me on that? How many of you have looked at your fall calendars and you're like, oh. yeah, me too. I was doing some planning in November. And I just went, wait, I already missed September and October. What's happening here? Um, but it's exciting. I love the start of fall and the new seasons, but let's not move there yet. Let's enjoy one last time together this coming Wednesday night. Briar Park will have signs out. We'll have pop-up tents so you'll know exactly where to go. So please, please come and hang out with us for that. The other announcement that I have for you is your online communication card or your connect card. If there is anything that you want to respond to um, that happens here at church or even prayer needs that you have during the week, we love hearing from you. We have a team of people that prays for those requests, and so um, we love knowing what's going on in your life and to be able to lift you up in prayer. So, um, yeah, fill that out. It's at brookviewchurch.com forward slash contact. And that's it. Good morning, everybody. You know, it's kind of heavier on this side, quite a bit heavier on this side than this side. The bride side is pretty full, the groom side not so much. Kind of feels like my wedding day. Oh, man. Thanks, babe. Woo. Well, you guys, in a, in a beautiful passage on what it looks like to follow Jesus in community, John, the disciple John, now, as, a, as an old man, writes a very tender letter. And in that letter, he writes this. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us, he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. 
This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. 2008, travel back with me, 2008, are you with me? Brickview sent its very first team on any kind of mission trip, and we decided to break in easy and go to Haiti uh, for our first short-term trip. And um, the people that went on that trip were like, you know, we don't really want to live at a, at a level that's sort of above the Haitians that we're ministering to, so we're just going to live among them and... You guys, we, we experienced things on that trip that were foolish, and they were shocking. Uh, we also saw things that were breathtaking and beautiful, but the, the amount that we, that we felt uh, the, out of our comfort zone that we were was, was unbelievable. Um, and so for the first several days of that trip, again, this is foolishness, this is a rookie mistake, we camped in a village called Bertrand. And to say it was rugged is like a huge understatement. Um, it was 105 degrees-ish every single day. And at night, thankfully, it would cool down to like 96. <laughs> um, and we were, we were sleeping in Coleman tents, and we had one-inch thick blow-up like blow mattresses that cushioned nothing, we discovered. Um, and there was no running water. We had no showers. There were no toilets. The bathroom was a hole in the ground, walled off by sheet metal held together by twine. And, that, uh, and the Haitians, when they, like, so they came into town and they actually built this just for us. Like they had their own, this was the fancy toilet. And so they showed us this thing. And, you know, the women, I was like, we're going to be here a few days. You know, sorry, ladies. But the guys, we're looking at each other going, dude. Three days. I can hold it. <laughs> right? But here's what we discovered. It turns out three days is a really long time to hold it, especially when eating Haitian food pre prepped by Haitian people uh, gives you intestinal distress. So uh, it turns out I spent more time than I ever imagined in that little sheet <laughs> metal box over a disgusting hole with who knows what crawling out of it. So it's about 105 degrees, but inside that metal box, it's like 120. And there's no breeze, right? Uh, and, and by the way, you have to squat, right? My knees. You know, I mean, I was back in those days, I was used to a newspaper. There's no newspaper and nothing flushes. And so as you can imagine, as the week goes on, now, uh, my stomach was not the worst by any stretch for people in our group. Many of you know Jeff Satterthwaite. His stomach turned after the very first Haitian meal that we ate in the village. And so he was in the little sheet metal area, I'm not kidding you, like 20 to 30 times a day. So after a few days toward the end uh, of, that, of our little stay in that spot, I got hit as well. And so we're at dinner one night and I'm not feeling well, and I'm just kind of sitting there. And so Jeff's wife, Monica, said to me, Jason, 
you aren't eating very much. Is everything okay? And I said, yeah, Monica, but my stomach is, you know, it's, it's off. And she says, diarrhea. <laughs> and, and I nod. And she says, oh, well, have you taken any Cipro? Now, for those of you who don't know, Cipro is an antibiotic that you take with you in developing nations, especially for bacterial issues that cause things like diarrhea. So she says, do you need some Cipro? Jeff and I have a ton. And Jeff, who's been sick for days, says, we do? She's like, oh, yeah, sorry, babe, we totally do. And I'm like, oh, no, this, those, are, those are only for the pastors, Jeff. That's a... So to start the trip, we, we spent three nights camping in Bertrand, no showers, insane heat, insects and spiders that you would not believe it is dirty and dusty all the time and it sticks to the sweat and there's intestinal distress and then you guys there's a variety of other issues like everybody seemed to have their own other issue uh for me <laughs> stop it <laughs> there's two of you in the room that know exactly where i'm going with this uh for me i i got a rash from the, the heat and the sweat and stuff, and it mostly in the places that don't air out well. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and then just trying to walk. Like, it just gets worse, and the chafe, it's chafing. And so the last day, we're in the village, and they're like, oh, hey, we want to give you guys a, a nice walk and a tour of the village. And I'm like, oh... I mean, I could barely walk. I don't want to be rude. I'm like, I want to see your village. But our whole team knew, right? Because when you're on a mission trip, there's no way to hide that stuff. And so everyone's giving me kind eyes, you know, like, oh. And then trying not to laugh. So the whole experience is just, it's just kind of shocking. It's so uncomfortable. No toilets, no showers for three days in that heat. Dusty air, you know, like... People, we tried using like diaper wipes to, to clean off a little bit at night or whatever before bed. I'll tell you what, don't put those on a rash. <laughs> Should have invested in some that don't have alcohol, I think. You guys, the whole thing was just, it was shocking. So the next day, uh, we moved. We moved from Bertrand and we had a whole different arrangement. We were in this little hotel by the ocean and it had running water and it had AC. And so what we did is we all, as soon as we got there, every single one of it, we just stripped off all of the Bertrand clothes, threw on a swimsuit, and we all went out and just soaked in the ocean. I mean, just being in that water, just like, oh my gosh. No one said a word, really. I mean, it was just a bunch of people, Americans, bobbing in the water. <laughs> Because it was the first time that literally, it was the first time our bodies had cooled off in days. And uh, like the ocean water just felt like heaven. So then we, we got out of there, we, we, we showered, everybody went back and showered, and that was another slice of heaven, just like running water from up here, oh my gosh. And it's, it's, not, it's not heated, I don't care. Um, and so we went back to our rooms and, and, and we showered, um, and then we went to dinner. But at dinner, I found out that 
During that little stretch between the ocean and dinner, we all did the exact same thing in our rooms. Everyone took our clothes from Bertrand and threw them in the garbage. <laughs> it was like, I am not putting those things in my bag to transport home and like wash a week and a half from now. Well, like I can live without them. So at dinner, we just sort of reflected on what had just happened. And here's the crazy thing. There was so much joy around the table. I mean, people were literally welling up with tears thinking about what just happened because we had connected and loved the people in that village so deeply. Uh, the connections that were made were so significant. Like we, we, we played with the kids. We talked with the adults. We shared meals with them. We joked with them. We started to learn their language. We started to teach them our language. They shared their customs with us. We shared some with them. We played more, more like hand games and stuff with kids than you could ever imagine. We gave them much needed supplies and we prayed with them a ton. And they would just tear up and say, thank you. Um, Dennis DeSanctus, for those of you that know Dennis, he was unreal for those three days. He, like, he went out and literally played soccer with the kids for hours at a time in the sun in 105 degree heat. And he, he got to know every single kid in that village by name, like 90 kids over three days. Like every little kid would come up to him and he would say their name. I'm just like, what is happening? And he would hold them, and he would tease them, and he would laugh with them. And he would, in his own way, communicate to every single child that he could, you are special. And they absolutely adored him. And if you know Dennis, he's not a real emotional guy. But that, those three days, they like, they wrecked him in a good way. Like, it took him months and months to sort of overcome and process what happened. So we, we all made uh, connections with people, but Dennis was on another level. So as we sat at dinner, we just went around and people were processing and there was so much joy and yet sadness as well. Sadness to be leaving Bertrand and leaving those people behind, but also these deep feelings of joy. And that's how the trip went. Uh, we had several more days after that and, and they too had you know, some discomfort to them, but there was nothing like camping in that village. Um, and, and what's amazing is that, that that experience that pushed me to my, like, physical brink um, was filled with so much joy that it's almost impossible to describe. And what I want to throw out there is that you guys have had your own version of that experience. Everybody in here has had some kind of version of that experience. You go through something hard and you make sacrifices for someone that you love and your love is given and it's received and you find that somehow, despite all the aspects of it for you that were depleting, you walk away from the whole thing filled up. And on that trip, I, I deeply experienced a powerful universal principle. And it's that the love of God is most profoundly received when it's given away. The trip was quite possibly, to that point in my life, the most joy I had ever felt. But as I grow in Christ, here's the thing. I don't want to have to go to Haiti to experience that kind of thing. Because I can live sacrificially in my ordinary life on ordinary days. 
And this is what Jesus is inviting me to discover. When acts of selfless love aren't just like extreme moments of extreme settings, they just become more and more ordinary moments of ordinary life. And when that happens, it's, the, then, then, it's then that the darker things of this world begin to lose their grip on us, and we begin to live by the beat of a different kingdom. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The biblical concept of love is active. Now, we live in a culture that has replaced active love with sentiment. We call sentiment love in our, in our culture. Sentiment is it's a seed of love that could grow into something, but often doesn't. Sen- sentiment is being more emotionally invested in the fictional characters of this is us than you are with the real life people in your own family, Right? Sentiment is getting choked up at the conditions of Malner's children during a particularly moving documentary, but then never lifting a finger to do anything about their condition. It's a news report that wakes you up to the victims of poverty or injustice, then turning that report into dinner conversations with people that are equally well-off and comfortable and doing nothing more. It's a post on social media or a sign in your front yard about anti-racism without actually building a relationship with anyone who is ethnically or socioeconomically different than you. But just a chapter prior to our message, to our passage from John 4, John writes this in chapter 3. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, How can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Real love has to be active. It may begin as a seed of sentiment, but then it grows and it blooms into something active. Sentiment is abstract, but love is concrete. Love is active and context-specific. Love is an extremely difficult word to define, isn't it? I mean, it's a word that we, we all know and we, we use a lot and we interact with regularly. But if, if you ask me to like write a definition of the word love that could go in all the dictionaries, like I would have a really hard time coming up with a phrase to describe it. But man, if you ask me to tell you about love, I could go on and on and on. But the love that I tell you about would have names attached to it, right? I I would describe it through actual people, real people, through names like Jen and Kate and Cam and Brooke, right? And Alex and Rebecca and Anne. Love is the most concrete, uh, relationally concrete word we have in the English language. You almost can't even talk about it without talking about real people. Um, Eugene Peterson says, love is the most context-specific act in the entire spectrum of uh, of human behavior. There is no other single act more dependent on and immersed in immediate context. So sentiment is a seed that can grow and blossom into love, but if it's not acted upon, what happens is it just evaporates. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. 
Love is the quality that's singled out as like the one word summary of God's entire identity. Love. And, And that means something profound for the aim of our lives. Because if God is first and foremost, let's say, power, if God is power, then authority or influence other over others is how I would then go about becoming godly, right? If God is first and foremost knowledge or omniscience, then the primary pathway to become like God is to gain knowledge and wisdom. But because God is love, then this is how we become like him. So years ago, when we, fat, when we, we sat down with a group of people to figure out what are we about at Brookview, And we prayed and we discussed and we worked through all kinds of ideas and we landed on a very simple two-word phrase, love lived. What are we about? We are about love lived. That means we're not primarily about knowledge gained. We're not primarily about peace felt. We're not primarily about sentiment stirred up. We are about love lived. We're not primarily about feelings felt. We're about entrusting ourselves to Jesus in family together so that through us, love would be lived out in tangible acts. Now, if we do a lot of things right, but we miss that, we are missing the ultimate thing. We're missing the the, the most important thing. And, And make no mistake, it's easy to do church and do life and do life in community and miss that. It happens all the time. I mean, we all know people that have gone to church for years and and know the Bible like the back of their hand and they can quote it to you, right? And they can recite big theological terms and tell you what they mean and and maybe people that do a lot of religious activities, but somehow, some way, that stuff does not produce love being lived through them. We've all seen it. And so I just, just wanna ask, how are we doing? Are we growing in our capacity to love? How are you doing? Are you growing in your capacity to love? If, if living love is the way to know and become like God, to what extent does that actually direct the aim of your life? And, and a simple way to do like a, a quick heart check on this is just ask yourself a simple question. What for you constitutes a well-lived day? Like, when you rest at home in the evening, what makes you say, whoa, today was a really good day? I mean, like, think about that for a minute. What for you makes a good day? Is it productivity? Is it the seamless execution of your agenda? Is it marking off an above average number of to-dos? Is it... Is that what makes today a really good day? Or is it maybe for you it's approval? Like the way you seem to be thought of by people in your world. Maybe by your boss or your colleagues or your child's teacher or that other parent on the playground. Is it really about approval? Or maybe it's about success or it's about comfort or, or just the endless pursuit of inner peace. I mean, maybe for you, it, it really mostly it just comes down to nobody messed with my inner feelings today. So it was, it was a good day. Or, or is a good day about love being extended and received? How I listened well or helped somebody through something. 
that I pave the way for some other person to begin to flourish in some way? Is it about being present with somebody? Is it that I confronted a problem that was getting in the way for someone and I helped them take that barrier out of their life? Is it that I loved someone deeply enough to speak a hard truth to them? Is it that I sacrificed for someone or connected with them in some way? I mean, what is, what is your standard of value when the day is done? When you're tired and, and you've done all that really can be done, what for you constitutes a well-lived day? And does your definition align with the definition of Jesus? Because the aim of following Jesus is to become love. And it's our actions and reactions that reveal really how far we've actually come. Like reciting scripture is good, right? I'm a pastor. For crying out loud, it's good. Uh, Wisdom is good. Feeling passion is good. Spiritual disciplines are good. Christian community is good. But the goal of all of that is to produce something in us. It's, It's that we become like Jesus. We become like God. That we would become love. It's all the unseen, ordinary moments that reveal then how far we've actually come. Am I I becoming love as I entrust myself to Jesus? That's the ultimate question. And the opportunities to practice love in ordinary, everyday life are endless. Because every person you encounter is sacred. I mean, that's, that's Genesis. That's the story of creation. Every person on earth bears the image of God. Your spouse, your children, your coworker, your roommate, your neighbor, your barista, the stranger you walk by, the guy that cuts you off on the road, the person who holds a very different political view from you, the person sitting next to you right now is sacred. Jen, no one near you is sacred. I saw you looking around. You're off the hook. (laughs) Strategic seating choice. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations. These are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. As Ted talked about last week, for those of you that were here, and I I love that guy. Um, But as Ted talked about last week, you are God's beloved. God loves you. But he also loves everybody around you. You are his child, but also you are surrounded by his children. And when we see ourselves and others as God sees us, it frees us to more and more value what Jesus valued. As we talked about a few weeks ago, the primary strategy of the devil is what? Lies. Lies about what? Well, primarily, it can be lies about all kinds of things, but primarily, he's attempting to distort your view of God, your view of yourself, and your view of others. And Tyler Staten says it this way. He says, the great deception of the enemy is to trick us into the belief that we have to earn what was breathed into us at first. And the great mission of God is to recover that beloved identity that was breathed into you and me at first. It's to give back to us freely what was given us freely before we had the chance to earn it or to lose it. 
And as we, by the grace of Jesus, rediscover our own belovedness, we are then empowered as his witnesses to draw out the sanctity that we now recognize in others all around us. The ministry of Jesus did not begin with preaching or miracles or a cross and a tomb. It began with receiving love. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Jesus does nothing until the Father calls him in the most public way possible, beloved. And from there, he then goes around the world giving out that same tenacious, relentless, defiant, faithful kind of love to anyone and everyone who will receive it. The way to know Jesus and to become like Jesus is simple. It's love. It's love lived. And And in the Bible, there are two groups of people that we are regularly just like implored to love. The Bible constantly is talking about these two different groups of people. It's talking about insiders and outsiders. So we are to love those in our inner circles, the people that we do life with daily, the family we live with, our closest friends, and we are to love those that are different from us. Both are important, but the challenge for each uh, is different. So let's, let's kind of walk through both of these. That's the rest of the message will be about. Start with the insiders. Another way to t- think of that is brothers and sisters or our inner circle. Scripture pleads with us to love our siblings, our family, those close to us. John says it in this way. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. And John had seen Jesus do this, love the insiders in the most intimate way. I mean, you think about Jesus. Yes, Jesus healed lepers and blind people and he fed thousands. Yes, Jesus went on missions of love to strangers, to outsiders. But Jesus also deeply loved the insiders of his world. Um, In addition to writing the letter 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, John also wrote a gospel. So the three gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all called, does anybody know what those are called? Synoptics. Um, I looked that word up because I'm like, I don't really use that in my normal everyday life. And it pretty much only pertains to those three gospels being described. So if you're like, I don't know what that means. (laughs) But essentially it means that the three of them have a lot in common. They're sort of written from a similar structure. They were written uh, in a similar time period. They describe similar events. um, And they seem to be drawing from similar sources as they tell the story. And they were written much earlier than the Gospel of John. John lived to be a very old man. Um, Of the 12 disciples, he outlived the rest of them by a, a large margin. And he wrote his gospel in his final years. And John wrote with the benefit of seeing various communities founded on Jesus' teachings as the three other uh, gospels circulated through them. And so his gospel is written a bit differently. And he adds a whole lot of color to what the other three accounts give us. He includes all kinds of things that the other three don't. For instance, in his report of the Last Supper, he focuses a lot less on the bread and the wine because the other three completely had that covered. So he focuses on two other elements that were present at the Last Supper. A towel 
and a basin of water. John is the only one to describe Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And so listen to, to his description of what happened. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And this is the ultimate picture of active, sacrificial love. Jesus loves his disciples in a way that they are completely unworthy of. I mean, that very night, shortly after this, every last one of them is going to scatter and abandon him in his greatest moment of need. One of them's already left the table to sell him out for a few pieces of silver. And Jesus has given his whole self to this little community. And that community is now about to break his heart. Have you, have you ever known that experience? Like, have you ever let your guard down and allowed yourself to be completely known? Like, have you ever loved and then loved hard and then been hurt by the people you loved? Have you ever been disappointed or neglected by those that you love most? So, so, so what do I do with that, Jesus? Wash their feet. Here, watch me. I'll go first. But, but where do I find that kind of love, Jesus? How do I, how do I just conjure up the kind of love that, that won't quit? The sort of love that can absorb the cost of the actions of others and then return love even when I have been hurt. And this is where Jesus leaned hard into the identity that was given to him by his Father. Did you catch verse 3 at the very beginning? Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. You know, for me, God has placed certain things under my power. I mean, I don't have thousands in my inner circle. I have Jen and Kate and Cam and Brooke. I have a few good friends. I have some extended family. I have my dad. And I have a limited amount of time to love them. What is my actual identity according to Jesus? Well, I am, a, I am a beloved child of a father who adores me. And he has given me a degree of influence in the lives of certain people. Not everybody, certain people. No one else will play the role that I do in the life of my kids. No one else will play the role that I do for Jen. And I, and I have friends that, that, and, and people that I can influence in this particular season of my life. That power or influence has been given to me as a gift from the Father above. And one day soon, I will be going to that Father. And the most important question will not be, did those people satisfy all my needs and bring me joy? The bigger question will be, to what degree did I enable those given to me to flourish? Like, this is my shot. This is my shot, and this is, and this is your shot, and you have your people. No one plays the role in their life that you do. So, so what do you do? Well, Jesus says, wash their feet. The scene concludes with Jesus saying, a new command I give you. Right, right after washing their feet. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And in many ways, the maturity of our love is tested by how we treat those closest to us. I mean, in this scene, Jesus is not washing the feet of a new crowd in a new town. These are not strangers. These are the people that Jesus was most familiar with. This is, this is his inner circle. And, and I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes, I'm actually, I find that I'm, I'm way better at like bursts of love than I am simply living a life of love in ordinary ways on ordinary days. Like I, I can go, I can go to a horribly uncomfortable place like Haiti, but because I've predetermined that when I go there, my only real objective is love everyone, love the team, love the Haitians, then because that's my only objective for one week, I am able to turn on love like a faucet. Right? But then what happens is I come back to my ordinary life with ordinary people and my primary aim shifts to all kinds of other stuff, to getting all, everything on my list done or achieving my goals or getting ahead or trying to get people to notice me and respect me, though very subtly because I don't want to look like I'm trying to get people to notice and respect <laughs> me, right? And suddenly there's, in my, in my everyday ordinary world, there's all these competing agendas. And so I've discovered that sprints of love are easier than running the long race. Like I can pour out love at my ID group or, or at a life group or I can go to church and turn it on because that's the focus for an hour and a half. Or I can go through a ministry day, right, and, and be emotionally present and I can be available and listen well and offer love. But then at dinner with my family, I'm distracted and agitated, irritable. Like the real challenge of, of people in our inner circle is that they're so dang familiar I mean, we know their flaws. We know their failures. We know their shortcomings. We know their annoying habits. Don't look at the person next to you. <laughs> right? We, we know the way they chew their food. We know the way they don't put the cap back on the toothpaste. That's a very hypothetical example. <laughs> That's right. You do have your own toothpaste. You can do whatever you want with your own dang cap. So if we're not careful, what happens is the people closest to us get the worst of us. So, so what do we do about it? Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus is saying that that, that table where you find yourself most frequently like your, your family dinner table or that fold-out Ikea thing that you pop out every once in a while that's in the corner, that makeshift spot where you maybe gather with a roommate or two every once in a while, or the, the break room with your coworkers. Jesus is saying, make it your habit to get up from that table, pick up a towel and a water basin, and wash those people's feet. And just to be clear, this is a metaphorical act. <laughs> I mean... Jesus is saying love actively and sacrificially. I mean, the, the biggest need that most people around us have is not to have their feet washed. I mean, maybe you have a coworker or something that's just gnarly, you know, <laughs> you want to get in there. But, uh, but, but, but people do have needs. They have needs. And, and you can pour life into them by identifying their needs and meeting them. Your spouse, your, your parents, your child, your friend, somebody you work with closely every day. 
So I just want to throw out, who is a person in your world, in your inner circle, that you have taken for granted lately? I mean, maybe you're working really hard to, to, to pour out all kinds of love for, for other people. But if you're honest and you think about this person that's probably in your innermost of circles, this person is, they're getting your leftovers. I mean, just ask yourself, who's getting the leftovers in my life? And if you have someone come to mind, then what could you bring to that person that would breathe life into them? Do you need to listen to them? Do you need to notice them? Do you need to encourage them? Do you need to plan something special with them? Do you need to lovingly challenge them in some way? Like, who's getting the leftovers in your life? And if you decided to love actively and sacrificially, what would best breathe life into that particular person? Not what do you feel like doing. What would actually breathe life into that person? God has given you influence. You can use it or waste it. And if we're not careful, those closest to us get the worst of us. And I don't know, I don't know about you, I, I want those who know me best to respect me most. I want, I want for my life to go that way. But that doesn't happen if I take my inner circle for granted. It doesn't happen if I only give them the leftovers. It doesn't happen if they consistently get the worst of me. Okay, so we are to love insiders. But Jesus also insisted that we love outsiders. You're like, I'm having trouble with the insiders. Jesus is calling us to something big, right? This is the heart of Jesus. This is the heart of the Father. Right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, like Jesus' most complete teaching about how to participate in the kingdom of God, Jesus says this. He says, you have heard that, that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, What reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans, people who don't don't love God the way that you say you do, do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. As human beings, we almost instinctively categorize our world constantly into us and them, right? We are tribal by nature. We, we, we love and support our tribe, us. But we have a very different way of treating them. And at any moment, we are dividing the world into one of the two. We do it without even being aware we're doing it. We, get, we just get sucked into it constantly. And all of us, every single one of us, are susceptible to it. Uh, I, I want to give you guys an example of how I sort of experienced the gravitational pull of this recently. For the last several years, whenever the Mariners host the Blue Jays, <laughs> there is an invasion from north of the border. It feels to me like an attack. There's only one Major League Baseball team in Canada these days, and it's who? Blue Jays, Toronto. 
And so if people in Western Canada want to see their beloved Blue Jays, the easiest way is to drive down to Seattle. And you guys, it's getting out of control. <laughs> what? Bus loads. Yeah, they're coming, planes, trains, automobiles, ships. Okay, so a few years ago, okay, when this is picking up steam, I went to a Mariners game against the Blue Jays, unsuspectingly. And you guys, it was nuts. There were literally about 20,000 Blue Jays fans at Safeco. More than half of the people that were watching the game were Blue Jays, and they were loud and obnoxious. (laughs) But before the game, out of great respect for our neighbors to the north, we played both national anthems. Okay, so first is O Canada. And when it's over, the place erupts. I mean, the Canadians go crazy. They just go, and they start waving around the maple leaf flags. And then, you know what happens right after that? It's disrespectful. They start chanting, Let's go, Blue Jays. Let's go. It's in the middle of the national anthems. Okay, and suddenly what happens among these sweet, you know, uh, Starbucks drinking Seattle people is the Mariners fans get awakened. They're like, what, what's happening? What the heck? What's going on? So a few years ago, I'm there and, and the old Canada thing happens and let's go Blue Jays. And everyone just, and so at the end of the Star Spangled Banner, the place just erupts. Like, you know, I, people usually, they, somebody sings the national anthem and we, you know, we politely clap and then we sit down. No, it's like, and then nobody knew what to do after that. So you know what happened? USA, USA, USA. It's embarrassing. I mean, but it is us and them. And from there on, all the way through the game, anytime something good happens for Toronto, it's just, let's go Blue Jays, right? And, and then that will carry on until enough Mariners fans can't stand it anymore, and that gets drowned out with, let's go Mariners, right? So you guys, it's just epic. There's this back and forth. And I, I told, man, I totally get swept up in it. So this year, I said to Jen, I'm like, we have to go to a Blue Jays game. (laughs) And it was awesome. I mean, first of all, the Mariners fans were loud and proud. And we we just drowned out those weak sauce (laughs) Blue Jays fans, right? Just, let's go Mariners. But even even better, you guys know what happened in the four-game series with with the Blue Jays this year? We won. No, no. We swept all four games. We sent those loser Blue Jays fans back north, winless and sad. It was so good. You guys, I sat by a Blue Jays fan the whole game, and, um, and I was nice to him. And he was nice to me. And... At the end of the game, he was like, you know, I like you and your wife so much. I think you guys should come up to Ontario and spend a weekend at our cabin. And so in November, I'm totally kidding. No, that did not happen. <laughs> but, but what did happen is he stood up and in a very Canadian way said, good series, eh? Congratulations. And he shook my hand. Like, yes, sir. Good series. <laughs> Listen, like, okay, so... So we're, we're talking about the sports world, and you're like, is that a sin? <laughs> no. 
But because sports are by nature. I mean, the whole, the whole design is that it's us and them. Yes? And you know that I love sports. But in feeling how riled up I get against the Blue Jays, I have realized, wow, you know what? I'm, I'm actually super prone to this whole us and them mentality. Um, so, so what happens then if I get swept up in this in some arena that extends beyond sports and has a whole lot more ramifications? Because as humans, we, we walk around every day labeling the world as us and them. Us and them might be racial, it might be political ideology, it might be a stance on COVID or vaccinations, it could be skiers and snowboarders, it could be mariners and blue jays. Some of it is kind of innocent, but much of it isn't, and we're all prone to it. We, we felt the dark side of tribalism during the pandemic and the election cycle, yes? I mean, tribalism is, is, is marked by, what defines it is, it is marked by joining a group primarily to oppose other groups. So it's not based on mutual love, it's based on mutual hate. It's not what you're for, it's what, it's what you're against. And it's, it's not wrong to be for stuff and it's not wrong to be against stuff, but, it, but what happens is, is it shifts and it's not what you're for and what you're against, it's who you're for and who you're against. And the enemy becomes people that God loves. Tribalism fosters hate. And we are all susceptible to it in any given moment. And so Jesus is inviting his followers to identify that and avoid it wherever possible, to, to work hard to stop seeing the world as us and them wherever we can. Because they, whoever they happen to be in a given moment, are sacred and they are loved by God. Jesus had an awful lot to say about how we treat outsiders. He said things that shocked the people of his own day, things that made him very unpopular, things that got him killed. And yet even those killing him were deeply loved by him. Right? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, what, 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 might happen on, what might happen on earth if a group of people began to really break free, like to truly break free from us and them thinking? What if there was a whole group of people that did that? And what if that group of people grew and grew and grew down through the generations? What if they began to show kindness to all without restraint? What if it's possible, Jesus is saying, for heaven to actually invade earth right here, right now? And what if this is a key part of the process? Jesus turned enemies into friends and friends into family. I think of Paul. What a beautiful story. But my story is not really any different from that and neither is yours because that's how Jesus treats people that oppose him. He refused to define people by their faults and failures. He saw what every single person could be if filled with the Holy Spirit. He prayed for it. He worked for it. And when he was gone, those that truly followed him did the same. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is essentially saying, if you love only your own tribe, what are you doing any more than anyone else? Isn't this what human beings have done for thousands of years? It isn't working very well for us, is it? I mean, this is why the world is so broken. God is inviting you to be his children and to live differently. Find a way to extend love to outsiders, to someone from a tribe that's, that's not your own. 
His kingdom come. His will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. So, who in your life right now have you been labeling as them? Who in your life do you see as from a tribe that's not yours? And how can you sacrificially and actively extend love to that person? What can you do? Jesus said, get creative. Get creative, invite God to join you, and then watch what happens. And don't just watch what happens in them. Watch what happens in you. Because Jesus isn't just inviting us to do random acts of kindness. The invitation is to entrust ourselves to him until we actually become love. And we are to love both insiders and outsiders, even though both come with unique challenges. Right, loving well is not easy. And this is why we need Jesus. This is why we need to be connected to him and dependent on him. But when we find tangible ways to do this, we find that a strange universal law is at work. And it's that when we, when we pour ourselves out, it's then that we're filled up. When we find ourselves feeling empty, and we find ourselves feeling empty a lot, when we find ourselves feeling empty, our culture says, you know what you need? You need me time. You need to treat yourself. <laughs> right? You feeling blue? You need to focus on you. Go somewhere. Take a vacation. Buy something for yourself. Eat something you like. Indulge. Get some me time. You deserve it. This is the way. But Jesus insisted that that is actually not the way to abundant life. Jesus said stuff like, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If you want to be filled up, you have to find a context to pour yourself out. What does that look like for you right now? Like, how can you pour yourself out for somebody who is an insider to you? And how can you pour yourself out for someone on the outside? I have discovered again and again and again, but I have to keep relearning it. I've discovered again and again that the way to be filled up is actually not more me time. I discovered it powerfully in 2008 in Haiti, and it's something that I feel and discover again and again and again. The best days of my life are these. They are the days that I love well. The days I pour myself out for someone else in a way that matters and makes a difference. Days that I am able to breathe life into somebody. Vacations can restore, right? They're great. New clothes and cars, they're exciting. Great food and drinks, one of the great pleasures of life. You should do that. Getting all the stuff on my list done, super satisfying. But there is no substitute for loving someone well. And without it, life will always feel empty. It's only when we find a way to pour ourselves out that we are truly filled up. So who in your inner circle needs to get the best of you for a while? And is there an outsider that you can invite in in some way? What is Christianity? 
It's love. First and foremost, it is love lived. This is life with Jesus. This is abundant life. Father in heaven, I think about the people that you've placed in my life that are so easy for me to to just give the leftovers to. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. You've given me one shot to build them up and to help them flourish. And God, I pray that you would help me identify how I can do that and do it the best that I can. But also for those that are that are in this world that are very different from me. God, you're calling me to love well. You're calling me to build bridges. You're calling me to, to take strangers and turn them into friends and then to take those friends and turn them into family. And God, I pray that you would enable me to do that because there is a beauty and depth to that that is beyond anything else in this world. So help me to not be distracted to do the things on my list that I, ha- that I need to do and to go on vacations and, and to go out for meals and, and, and to, to enjoy new clothes or new things here and there, but to never get distracted and think this is where I will find life. Life is found in, in love being lived. Jesus, you demonstrated it again and again. You're inviting me into it. Help me to go there with you.